So today we're in Jonah chapter 4. We are actually finishing the book of Jonah. We made an all-time record, seven weeks in one book, and we did it. Um, I'm, I'm contemplating next going to 1 Corinthians. So that'll be like a year and a half, so it'll, it'll balance it out. Um, so yeah, again, uh, if you don't have a Bible, the seats right in front of you have uh, ESV Bibles. And uh, if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift, and uh, we'll restock it. Um, so today, Jonah chapter 4, like I've been saying every week, this book is meant to be heard. Um, it was written in a way to capture audiences the way it was written. And uh, my man Nate is going to read it. All right, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, preserving it for thousands of years, for generation after generation after generation, so that we could sit here together in this room and we could read it and study it and, and, and um, try to gain context and try to get into the mindsets of the people who, who, who dealt with you and had brushes with you and people who you changed. Um, I ask that you would somehow help us grasp what was going on in these passages and apply it in this 21st century world, which seems so separated, but the mindsets are the same, our worldly mindsets, and um, help us to... Um, adopts the uh, the truths that are that are so easily accessible in this book. God, be with us this morning and uh, give me wisdom as I'm speaking. And and uh, may these be your words and not my own. May we never force interpretations into the book that aren't supposed to be there. But may we find the truth and may we submit to it. Um, whether we um, whether it's hard to do or whether it's easy to do. Uh, be with us this morning, God. Thank you. In your name, Amen. All right. So at the beginning of Jonah chapter four, verses one through. Um, one through four, we found Jonah last week throwing a bit of a fit, um, acting a little bit like a teenage girl. Um, I want to die, and she's really, really upset. Um, 
And he, he sort of, he sort of is, is talking to God and he says, I, I, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to be merciful on these people. That's why I ran. In other words, um, I only was doing what was best for you. Um, telling God, in other words, that, that he had a better plan than God had. Um, so, we find Jonah, after throwing this whole fit, marching to the top of this hill, east of the city, and, uh, and, and, and this is where it really kind of gets interesting to me, because it says that he went out and he sat there, and it says, till he should see what would become of the city. And he already knows what's going to become of the city, yet he marches out of the city to the top of the hill and sits down and he's going to watch what, what God's going to do. Um, and, and, and he does this after he gives this little spiel. I knew you couldn't do it. I knew you were loving. I knew you were comforting. And you know what? I, I kind of feel like he's doing some reverse psychology. I, I knew it. I knew you couldn't do it. I knew that you were just so merciful, so loving. You can't destroy these people that obviously hate you. And, and, and then he marches out of the city. He goes to the top of this hill and, he, and he's looking at the city, and he sits down, and he says he's going to wait and see what God's going to do. Um, and you kind of see this. Um, it, it, it would appear that, that a lot of people in this story, in the, in the book of Jonah, and all the four of these chapters, have this feeling that God's going to change his mind when God hears what he has to say. Um, this is the ship captain, um, and, and he finds Jonah not praying, and he says, why aren't you praying? Quick, I need you to pray to your God. Perhaps he'll have mercy on us. And then and then you see the, the, the king, and he says, tell everyone to put on sackcloth and ashes. I know it's too late. I know that, that you, uh, it, the destruction is coming down. We have, we have 40 days, and, and, and it's all over. And, and so, but, but we're going to do this anyways. We're going to repent, um, and he's going to see it. And, and there's a chance, maybe, that he'll relent of what he's going to be, be doing. And then, and then you see Jonah. They all do this action, and they, expect, they, they, they want God to change what he's going to do. And so they're doing something to try to coax him into doing it. So Jonah gives this big speech. Um, and then he goes to the top of the hill and says, now I'm going to sit and wait and see if that works, see if that did anything. All right, Jonah really wants these people to get it. He really wants them um, to feel the, the wrath of God in some way. Um, so Jonah's already been told quite clearly um, what's going to happen. And he goes up to wait, and it says this. Um, Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Um, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen. So it says that he made a booth for himself. All right. Text. Um, he says that he made a booth for himself. Now, in Hebrew, there's a word there. It's, it's sukkah. Um, um, if we're a little disconnected from the ancient culture, um, maybe some of you read that he went up to the top of the hill and he built a booth. And you're like, okay, that's weird. He built a booth. Some of us, when we picture booth, we picture like guard shack or like, um, you know, just something like you're selling tickets out of or, you know, at, at the fair. Um, and he just builds this booth, and you think that's a little awkward. Um, being a Jew, it's, it's, it's not awkward at all. Um, the booth is called a sukkah. Uh, verse 5 says, says that he went and he built this, this sukkah. It was a small temporary hut um, that the Jews made during the festival of Sukkot. So um, there is some question about whether or not he's celebrating a festival um, called the Feast of Tabernacles. The, 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 the Jews called it Sukkot. Um, there is some debate about whether or not he is doing this. Theologically, if he was, that says something pretty amazing, and we'll get there. Um, so, uh, a, sukkot, a sukkah was always made of raw materials picked up from the ground. It was required to have the very stringent requirements in the book of Deuteronomy about building uh, one of these sukkah booths. It was required to have a roof that, while providing some shade, it couldn't be impervious to the sun. Um, uh, and, and all these guidelines were put in place, and if you didn't keep these guidelines, then your booth was not considered kosher. Um, and so... Um, one of the guidelines was that you had to be able to view at least three stars through the roof, which is really interesting. Um, I have a picture of one here, if I may. Um, 
So here's a bit of one. It's made simply from stuff, although that does look like a 2 by 4 doesn't it? Um, but it's... <laughs> I caught I caught him. Um, this is not a kosher, a, a kosher sukkah, all right? Somebody should tweet that. This is not a kosher sukkah. Um, so uh, he... He, he builds this, this thing, and, and see, as you can see, it's made of materials, primarily, that are picked up from the ground. Um, and this is, uh, you know what this is? This is, this is a picture of the gospel. And, and, and let me explain. So the, fel- the festival celebrates the providence of God. Um, the name they would use for this part was Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord is my provider. Um, they were required to live in this booth for seven days. Um, and the point was that you were supposed to experience the presence of God in, in the form of shade. Um, you were exposed to the elements, you were cold by night, you were hot by day, but you survived. All right? Um, it's all you have, it's your only protection. You had to live in this thing, you have to eat in this thing for seven days, and every bit of this structure that was your only shelter for seven days um, was a free gift from God that, that you didn't work for, that was laid there by God and, and, and offered freely. You just had to walk over and pick it up. It's a picture of the gospel. Um, it's a picture of the people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's, it's a picture of, uh, of grace offered freely to a people who didn't have to work for it. Except for that two-by-four, nothing was worked for. All right? Um, and, and, and they would go around and they would just find things and they would pick them up and they would just put them together. Now, it, there was this element of struggle. There was this element of, uh, of, of um, a, a little bit of, of, I guess, struggle and, and persecution as it... Um, in the form of um, there really wasn't a full-on roof. There was some shade, but it was sort of like a screen. You know what I mean? Like not full shade, but it was a little cooler. Um, the wind could blow right through it, into the top, out to the front. Um, didn't have any doors. One of the walls had to be open. Um, so it offered some protection from the heat, from the midday sun. It offered some warmth from the cool. Um, but you had to feel it. And you had to experience, but God's keeping me warm enough. And, and God's keeping me cool enough. And, and God is taking care of me. God is providing. Do you see that? It's, it's pretty, pretty beautiful when you think about it. So um, this is what they had to do for seven days. And as you sit in one of those rickety booths, you're peeking up at the sky through the branches, and you're feeling the wind blowing through, and you realize that security comes from God who protects you. It comes from the Lord. And you begin to realize the abundance of God's blessing, even in the desert, in the wilderness. All right, now Jews still celebrate this today. Um, I'm told if you go to uh, um, if you, if you go to Israel, um, even people who live in in these big sky rises that have um, balconies in the back, they have balconies, and so they would build uh, a sukkah on, on the back balcony. So you look at the building, and there's just uh, shrubs, shrubbery all the way down the side, and and there's and there's people out on their balcony celebrating this this festival. It, it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It's pretty brilliant. So um, this is. Um, when he u- actually uses the word, Jonah built a sukkah. So this is what you can have in mind of him doing this. He has some shade, but he's still very, very hot. Um, now, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as, as, as we call it, um, it, was, it was supposed to happen, and this is fascinating, so pay attention to this, just a few days after um, Yom, P- Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement. There's, there's several festivals that happened back to back to back there. Um, Passover, when the wrath of God passed over, uh, the people and was not dealt out on them, and then um, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the people uh, would would go through the process of, of of putting their sins upon the the goat that would that would literally take away their sins out of the city, um, and then 
the next, very next one up, just a few days later, was this festival, the booth. Now, um, this is great to me because as you think about it, it was just a couple of days afterwards, um, and his wrath was being passed on to the sacrificial lamb. Uh, they wouldn't be punished for their sins because of their solemn act of repentance. Um, I think God is explaining something a little bit. The people of Nineveh, they, they repent, they, they, they come to an understanding that they were in the wrong and then they turn to God and they completely repent. All right? Right after, which is beautiful, right after Jonah experiences three days in the whale, um, the whole symbol of, of Jesus, um, the people on the ship are going are gonna to die unless um, Jonah is killed for them. And then he comes out. and then it, So you can see the festivals back to back there. The Jews would have picked up on this and they would have been like, that is beautiful. And so I, I hope we can see this stuff too when we read it. Um, it's very important to have context of the Old Testament. Uh, when you read it. So, let's talk about shade, because it, it, as we read here, um, it says, uh, verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Uh, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Uh, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Okay, so he's in this booth still. Um, we're going to talk about the plant in a little bit. We're going we're to ignore it for the moment and come back to it. He's in this booth, and he still feels the scorching heat, and he feels faint. Um, this is, uh, I want to talk to you about shade in the, in, in the desert there. If you talk to people who, who ever take tours in, in the Middle East, um, one of the best, most important things you can do in the Middle East is to cover your head. Shade is incredibly important in the desert there, especially in the Negev Valley, um, because in that desert, you're not going to survive in the sun. You have to have your head covered. The most important part of your body to keep cool is your head. The rest of your body doesn't even necessarily matter as long as you're keeping your head covered. Um, this is why um, Arab people in the Middle East typically wear head coverings because the uncovered head will kill you in the desert. Um, uh, I'm told that if you go to um, the Negev Valley and, and you see shepherds, what you'll see in the mid middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, usually between 10 and 2, um, depends on, on what time of year, um, you will see the shepherds um, laying down with their head under a bush um, and their body out in the sun, and you'll see the, she the, the sheep either coming up, lying up next to rocks and putting their heads under the rocks or up against the cliffs with other sheep laying sort of underneath them. Um, and they will usually stay like that until uh, the sun sort of moves and it gets a little bit cooler. Then they'll come out and continue their day of, of shepherding. Um, and, uh, and, and so they would, they would, this is how they would rest. Now, um, there's this thing called a broom tree. Um, the broom tree is the only shade that, that really exists of any regularity in the desert. Um, there's not a lot of plant life. There's not a lot of foliage. Go to the next picture for me. Um, oh, yeah, this is the Negev Desert. Very, very dry. Go to the next one for me. Sorry about that. So this is broom tree. It's about yay high. This is Nate. Nate's brought me a tree. This is not a broom tree. I was going to order one from Israel. And my Amazon Prime expired, so I <laughs> couldn't get free shipping. Um, so I, I got this from right there. <laughs> um, free shipping. Um, so a, a broom tree really is about the only plant with any kind of, of, of regularity that, that grows in the desert. And you don't have context here. There's nobody standing there. So here's me, and this is pretty much the height of a broom tree. Um, so, um, and that's, that's honestly, they're not, they don't, 
provide all that much shade. There's enough for your head. As you can see, the average-sized head could find shade under a tree like this. Um, so if you're, if, if you're standing up straight, a grown man, it would come up to about the height of your right hand, which is about right here. Um, probably your left hand, too, if your arms are the same length. So this, this tree is mentioned a few other times in scriptures. Um, 1 Kings 19, fill this one up for me, this passage of scripture. All right, so it's, it goes like this. Um, and this is, there's a lot of theological thought here. I want you to think about this with everything that we're talking about and reading. Um, but he himself went a day's journey. This is Elijah, if you're lacking context of 1 Kings. This is Elijah. He himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Pause. Apparently there's a lot of people that wander out and lay down under a broom tree and wish to die. So you see this a lot. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now, cake baked on hot stones... They didn't put those stones on the fire. They were that hot to where they could bake cakes on them in the middle of the day. Still do that today. Um, and behold, the angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head uh, a uh, cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. Um, and then the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. That picture of... Spiritual renewal again. It's all through the scriptures, all right? Um, he, he went all the way to Horeb, the Mount of God. So, do you see the, the, any theological message laid out in this passage? He was done. He was exhausted. He was tired. And he lays down under this broom tree, and God nourishes him. There's no shade. There's just this little tree. And he finds it, and he's like, I'm just going to die. And so he lays down, finds a little bit of shade under this tree, and he lays down. Um, I want to show you something in Psalm 121. Go ahead, next passage. The Lord is your keeper. This is the traveling psalm. The Lord is your shade at your right hand, and the sun shall not strike you by day. This is a picture of the Lord. The booth, the sukkah, was a picture of the Lord. Do you remember when we talked about, um, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures, Psalm 23, and we talked about green pastures aren't really like really thick, high-waist grass. Um, it's, it's little shrubs that would grow in the desert. And, and, and when the scorching heat came, they would die. They'd rise up in the morning because they would receive moisture overnight. And then they would wither up, and the, the, the animals couldn't eat them, so they had to move on. And so all the sheep are given every single day is just a little bite, and then they have to keep moving, keep following the shepherd. They find another bite there, and they follow the shepherd. And, and he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, they know me. They follow me. Um, and, and he leads them to green pastures, these little bits of plants here and there, and he keeps leading them, and they keep following uh, he didn't promise you this big oasis you're going to hang out in. Um, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. Uh, this is not, I'm sorry, there's, this is not a spring of water with giant palm trees. This is all God might be offering you at the moment. I don't know how tired you are. I don't know how exhausted you are. I don't know what you've been through this week. But um, God hasn't promised you that that wouldn't happen. God never promised you that things wouldn't get difficult, that bad things wouldn't happen. Um, all he promised you is that he would be the shade at your right hand. That if you follow him, he's going to lead you by fields of green, which really aren't fields. They're green plants in the desert. They're there for a short amount of time. And you're not going to know where to get them if you don't follow him, all right? For the Jews, it was actually a really good thing, the idea of the desert. The idea of the desert was very, very important to the Jewish people. Um, in Hebrew, the word for wilderness was this word midbar. Next slide for me. 
Um, so here's the word in Hebrew, midbar. Um, there's not vowels uh, in, in Hebrew, um, and so we, we can sort of, uh, you pick up the words, this would be midbar. So and this, this word is used, it, it means wilderness, basically, desert wilderness. It's used at different times. Numbers 1-1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, the midbar of Sinai, um, in the tent of meeting. Okay, so um, now there's a root here. You have, um, in English, we, we would say DBR, it's, it's, that's debar. Now, it has several different, uh, they would call them, the Hebrew would call them shades of meaning. Each words could be used in a wide variety of ways, um, especially in the root letter. So if you, if you take the M off, you have DBR, uh, basically you have holy of holies and sheepfold. Those are the two words that, you, that, that, that debir would mean. Holy of holies and sheepfold. Um, you put the M on the front, it becomes midbar, and that basically means wilderness or place of words, place of speaking. So in this one word, in the root of it, we have the word for the place where God dwells, where the high priest is allowed to go, the place where God on earth, God, earth and heaven meet, okay? Um, but you also have sheepfold, where the, where the shepherd brings his sheep. Huh? That's, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Um, and then you have midbar, wilderness, but, but it also means the place of words, the place of speaking. Um, these things were important uh, to, the, to, to the Jews, the way that they described things. And so when you were in the desert, um, if you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, if you're a normal everyday person and, and you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, you would think about it, where, where would you go to meet God? In the desert. In the wilderness. Um, and, and, and this gets opened up a lot in scriptures. Um, so you're not going to hear God in, in a farmland, in a city, because you're too busy speaking for yourself. You're too busy doing things. You're too busy um, providing for yourself, providing for other people. In the desert, we do things like build booths out of what God has given us. In the desert, we, um, we do things like we keep moving because we, and we follow our shepherd because he knows where to, where to fill us. In the desert, we do things like lie down under simple little trees and find just enough shade to survive for the afternoon. And why would the Jews ever think that this would be a good idea? Because in the desert, you hear God because you have to depend on him for everything. The desert is a place where you can't survive apart from the direct intervention of God. So when you're in the desert, you know you totally depend on God. If he doesn't send water, you don't drink and you die. If he doesn't send bread or shade, you die. So now you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you cannot live without God when you're in the desert. The desert, in metaphorical Hebrew terms, is the place you dwell when life is tough. So when they would talk about um, difficult things, they would say, I am in the desert. I am relying on God because I, I, I cannot provide what I need at this time, at this moment. Um, he even warns the people about, about this idea of moving out of the desert. Put up the piece of scripture for me, Deuteronomy 6, which is one of my favorite passages of scriptures. Verse 10 and 12 says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. When you come out of the desert into the land of Canaan, and the enemy has been driven out, and you receive free stuff, free vineyards, free houses, free food, free water, everything that you had ever desired, and I give it to you, be careful. Because as time goes on, you're going to forget where you got it. 
once you get in it and you start working in the field and you start doing your own work, you're going to feel really great about the things that you're doing and you're going to forget that I gave it to you. The desert is a better place to dwell for them. When things got very, very difficult, they prayed more, they, they, they fasted more. All right, Every room is full of people um, that are in the desert. Uh, many of you today are in the desert. A lot of you are, are in the city, you're in the vineyard. Life is good, life is great. I don't knock that, that's awesome. But I, I want you to remember the times when it was difficult. Remember people that are in the desert. And remember where you got your blessings. I wish there was some way that I could tell you that if you're a follower of Christ that you're going to be in this oasis, this magical cold water spring and, and tons of palm trees with dates and raisins and shade. But more often than not, all you're going to get is just enough shade to survive and the Lord reminding you that he is the shade at your right hand. So you're in the desert, you're looking around and you're like, God, where are you? I am the shade at your right hand. That is me. I am here to provide you with that. So part of the reason the Western world has such a hard time following Christ closely, the reason there's so much of a fallout, the reason people leave churches, leave uh, faith altogether and walk away from God is because for some reason we like to teach people that if you're a Christian life is going to be this oasis, it's going to be great. And we have this misinterpretation of exactly what we are promised by God. And we invent things called prosperity gospel. Um, and we assume the reason we have all these blessings is because we are very, very godly. And I say this all the time. People throughout the history of Christianity followed God closer than any of us ever will, and things went very bad for them. And they sang and were glad and were happy with what they were going through. They rejoiced through it. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day. So this is for Jonah. Back to Jonah. I think this is a moment of revealing grace for him. He builds this sukkah, and God sends him more grace than everyone else gets. If he was, if he was celebrating um, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles at this time, then there were Jews all over Israel and all over the lands that they had been given that were also celebrating, uh, celebrating the, the Sukkot, and they were living in these huts. And, and, and watch what Jonah gets above and beyond everyone else. The Lord God appointed a plant and, it made, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah's in a sukkah, and apparently God sends this plant to, to, to rise up and to cover Jonah's head even more. It was a little bit of sun exposed, and God actually sort of bends the rules and gives him more shade than everyone else gets. Everyone is, is supposed to sit in the blazing heat in this sukkah and experience a little bit of the shade of God. And God looks at Jonah, who just said terrible things to him, and he says... I'm going to send a little bit of a plant to cover him just a little more. Give him a little more grace than everyone else. Because I'm about to teach him another lesson. He's not getting it. He's not getting this, under, uh, this idea of grace. He's not understanding it. See, I mean, and it, 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 verse 6 says, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah became happy when he, became, when he, when he was more blessed. And this is really a picture of us. So often, we, things are going really well. We're just, we're really, really happy. Things are going really well. All this great stuff is happening in my life. And, and that joy is, is just completely gone before you receive those things or after those things are gone. Um, once again, those thoughts of God is blessing me because of what I have done, all my good deeds because I'm a good Hebrew. Uh, like he says in verse 1, they come creeping in. 
And as he sits on that hill and waits to see what God will do, he feels a little bit of the blessing that, again, was unmerited, and he instantly lets his mind wander back to his old struggle. I am a Hebrew. I am a prophet of the one true God, and these are pagans, and I'm going to wait and see, watch, and, and, and see until God destroys them. See? God just gave me a little extra blessing. What does that tell you? You see? What Jonah thinks about us, he was exceedingly glad. And in an instant, it all comes rushing back to him. Have you ever read... The, okay, have you ever read... Um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, maybe you haven't, maybe you've just seen the movie. The, the book captures some pretty cool biblical stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he, this man, uh, Dr. Jekyll, comes to this realization that he is, as he calls himself, an, un, in, an incongruous compound of good and evil. Um, and that, that's what he calls himself. He, he realizes that, like, I am this compound of both good and evil, and, and I just want it to be good. I don't want to have this evil in me anymore, okay? So his bad nature is holding him um, from really getting out on his good nature. So, and he can aspire to do these things, but he can never follow through, which is pretty much what Paul says. The things I want to do, I do not do. The things I do not want to do, I end up doing. It's, it's very, <clears throat> very Pauline, the way he talks. Um, and so he invents this potion that gets sci-fi, um, and he separates his two natures. He, he, he creates this potion that will do this somehow. Um, and his hope is that he'll drink the potion, and his good side will come out, his bad side will be locked up in his mind, and what happens is the bad side comes out far more often than the other side, and he's much more evil than he ever actually thought that he was. So um, I'm going to read you a passage from this now. Go ahead and hit that one. Okay, so it says this. I knew myself at first breath of this new life to be more wicked and tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment raced and delighted me like wine. Edward Hyde's every act and thought centered on itself. Hyde is the, the reason the author calls him Hyde. It's, it's not because he's hideous or anything like that. It's because he's hidden inside of that person. He's hidden inside every one of us as, as the moral of the story really goes. And he thinks, um, he, he only can think of himself, of his own business, of making himself better. He doesn't care about who he hurts in order to gratify himself. So the, Robert Louis Stevenson's message, is, message, it's pretty simple, it's pretty biblical. And at the end of the book, uh, we find him sitting on a park bench after he's cured himself. He's not taking the potion anymore. It's all gone, and he realizes that he needs to deal with himself in a better way. Um, and, and so we find him sitting on a park bench. And throw the next, the next quote up here for me, and this is what he says. This is the end of the book. As he finds himself... Now you don't need to read it. There you go. As he finds himself at the end of the story... Um, he writes this, I resolve in my future conduct to redeem the past. I can say with honesty that my future resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of, that, of, of last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others, but as I smiled comparing myself with other men, comparing active goodwill with a lazy rulety of their neglect, at that very moment... Of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. And I looked down, and once more again, I was Edward Hyde. This is a great, great picture of Jonah to me. He learns his lesson, and he says, I'm resolving to just do this right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the right thing. And Jonah's like, I'm going to follow God closely. And, and he preaches, and the people repent, and he goes up on the hill, and he sits. And as he sits, and he thinks... And he receives some blessings from God, and he starts to think highly of himself. His rage just grows inside of him, and he watches in hopes that God will destroy this city. These things that are hidden inside of him come raging out again for like the third time now. 
and God is revealing to him over and over and over. I imagine God has been maybe revealing to you through different things that have been happening, who you are, your own responses to these things. And maybe you found yourself, I'm a lot more evil than I actually thought I was. I, I thought I could handle something like that better. And this is sort of what Jonah's experiencing here. So this is like, this is a setup. God does the setup here, and it's, it's, it's very witty, it's brilliant. And Jonah's about to get one last wake-up call from God. So God reveals just how, how low um, Jonah actually thinks of the Ninevites. N- Jonah had no idea that he thought so lowly of the Ninevites, I don't think, um, until this happened. God points out <clears throat> that he's more upset about the plants perishing than the Ninevites. And so read with me. Um, Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head, so, uh, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You see what he did there? You may not have caught it at the very end. Um, that, that cattle thing, it was a, a really sarcastic sort of jab at also much cattle. Do you, okay, so God was basically saying, I know you love that plant and, and you were really attached to it. It gave you more shade. Um, and you were really upset to lose that plant. But if you thought about what it would mean to lose something like the city of Nineveh, because I don't think you've thought this through. We've already established that you don't like, this is God talking, we've already established that you don't like the people of Nineveh. There's 120,000 of them, you don't care. But have you thought about the loss of cattle? And that, that, it, that's how it ends. It's the only book in the scriptures to end with a question. I know that plant was really important to you and you're really upset about losing it, but imagine, you're sitting there waiting for me to raid fire down on this city, which you don't care about the people. I get that, but do you have any idea how many cows are in that city? <laughs> wow. All right. This, that, was, that was fast. All right. God's pretty quick. Um, I mean, this is, this is the first century equivalent of, of, dude, there's a fire downtown, and that building, that tower, it, it fell down. And the dude looks at you and goes, man... There was a new taco bus franchise on the bottom floor of that building. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So, um, it's, it's funny. Usually when I'm preparing for a sermon, um, I deal with whatever I'm thinking about, whatever I'm studying for the whole week. Um, not too long ago, I, I, I preached a sermon on, um, it, we came to a passage in, um, in the book of James that was about death, and we experienced death as a community. We, we, we mourned through someone who, who died together. Um, oftentimes when um, we are getting ready, and it's always before the passage, not after, which is different. And one time we were getting ready to talk about um, sexuality, and then, and then stuff started coming out, and people started coming to me. And, and it, it, it's whatever I'm, it's, it's weird, whatever we're about to study and talk about, we deal with. So um, this morning I wake up, and I go out to ride my scooter, and it's been stolen overnight. Uh, ah, it's, it's all good. Um, you know what my biggest thought was? My favorite gloves were in that glove box. My favorite gloves. All right? We, we care about little things in disasters. Not that that's a disaster, a little red scooter. Um, <laughs> the world's dying. 
Um, we care about disaster. In disasters, we always think about these little stupid things. We're not thinking about loss of loss of life. Uh, we're not thinking about the bigger picture of things. And, and this is sort of where Jonah's going here. He 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 really cared about that plant that covered him that died. And, and God's like, oh, you like stuff? You you just you like you like you like wild stuff? I mean, there's there's cows in there. They're all gonna die. And I imagine Jonah hearing this saying, man, do I feel stupid. And God puts it all in perspective with a simple little question. I mean, Jonah's heart was being revealed over and over and over. And in this last final blow that God gives him, I can't help but look at myself and see, I can't help but look at him and see myself. Uh, You ever say things like, did you hear what what so-and-so was going through? Yeah, they deserved it. Why? Did they offend you in something? Did they hurt you? Did they do something physical to you? Because that's a human being. Remember that passage we we read last week that talked about how if you hold someone's coat as like a verbal contract and they're going to give you something and that they don't actually pay up, give them back their coat. Because if they're cold tonight when they're sleeping and they cry out to me, I'm going to hear them and I'm going to deal with you. Yeah, but they deserved it. Yeah, but they're a human being. And God's offering them grace. And so I, I read what Jonah's thinking, his mindset, and I'm like, my mind goes to all these different places that I've, I've, I've been like that. It's entirely possible that you can become so focused on how good and godly you have been that you end up depending on your own abilities, and it grows into pride, it grows into idolatry. Um, I think one of the questions I want us to ask ourselves today as, as we go is, is, where are you now? Are you, are you in the city? Are you in the vineyard? Are you, are you in the desert? I mean, if you're in the city and you're in the vineyard, awesome. I'm, I'm happy for you. Things are great. Um, stay focused, please. The question we asked last week, who are you and what are you doing here? Remember these things. I hope maybe you thought about that this week. And I want to ask you another question for those of you who are in the city, in the vineyard. Things are good. Nothing big is going on. When is the last time you were in the desert? And I want you to create a contrast in your mind. I, I bet you prayed more. I bet you communed with God more. I bet these times meant more to you then than they do now. Um, I bet you relied on God more. I bet he gave you just enough to cover your head. And I bet you were more thankful then than you are now. This is just human nature. Maybe you've got it down and you're really thankful, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, however good you're doing, when you were in the desert, you were actually doing better if you were truly following God. He's the shade at your right hand. So I want, I want to read a passage, and I want us to read it out loud. Throw up the next passage for me. We already read this, and I want to read it out loud. And hopefully you'll remember it this week. So read it with me. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Let's take communion. This is something we do every single week. It's our way of, of remembering Jesus and what he um, did for us.
And um, this is a very simple thing. We do it every single week. We like to constantly be in communion with God. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in the glass, and we eat it. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ spilled for all of us. The, the, the wine represents the, uh, the, blood of Christ, uh, the, the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. I think I said the body is spilled. It's broken for all of us. And, um, and so we take some time, and, and, we, and we take a piece of bread, we dip it, and we eat it, and we say, Lord, I do this to remember you and what you did for me. Um, the, that thing he did for you, offering grace, giving of himself so that you could have grace, he's still doing that every single day. And so I hope that this week, as you go throughout your week, that you can remember that, that God is still pouring out his grace on you and that you're never alone. He's giving you just enough to make it. Sometimes he's giving you much, much more. In those times, you need to rejoice. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's giving you just what you need at that moment. He's doing that to strengthen you. According to the book of James, he's doing that as a test to make you stronger. It's a trial. All right? So um, let's pray and let's take communion, and then we'll sing one more song. Father, we love you. You're a good, holy God. Thank you for all of your blessings, everything you do for us. Um, You are wonderful, and uh, we are your servants. We are your sheep. Thank you for offering um, your sheep uh, a, a chance to walk right into your holy of holies, into your sheep pen where you keep your people so that we can sing about you and, 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 and sing to you and just dwell in your presence, God. I hope now that this is a time when uh, you can bring things to our mind that we need to repent of, ways that we need to change. And um, help us to rightly and fully repent. And let us declare your righteousness over our sins. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to God.